Good morning. Well done. My name is Brandon. Uh, I'm the pastor of preaching here at Sojourn Heights. As um, as Dodd said, we're in a, in a series on John. And so, so far we have uh, started out looking at the life of, uh, of Jesus, who he was. Uh, we saw his first miracle in the last week. He um, shattered some religious paradigms. And this week he's going to shatter some more. And so I say we, um, I say we get started. Uh, there are... Uh, questions that from an early age that we start searching for answers to, right? So um, as a kid, it starts with, is Santa real, right? Is he real? How does it go house to house? Does he have a key? Does he not have a key? How does this happen? These are questions that we start universally as children searching for the answer for. And then my favorite one, uh, my favorite one, which is my my daughter who is now six when she was four, um, sat down on the couch, looked at my wife and I, and just said, how do you make a baby? Exactly, right? So how do you answer that question other than uh, go to timeout? Like, I don't know any other answer for that question <laughs> timeout. Uh, but then we get older and our questions start to get a little bit more serious, right? Uh, w- will I ever get married? Uh, is this the career for me? Maybe uh, more philosophical even. Uh, why do good things that's not it. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Or I guess the inverse is true. Why do good things happen to bad people? That's a real question, especially in the Psalms. Uh, but then there are some questions uh, that take us to life's deepest questions. And the thing about life's deepest questions is that often we don't even know we're asking them. Often these questions are questions that don't Uh, get verbalized very well, they just come in the form of an ache. They just come in the form of this ache inside that says there has to be more to life than this. There has to be more to life than this. And this ache has an undercurrent. The undercurrent is life's most fundamental question that all of humanity asks. And it's the question our text is going to deal directly with. And so let's get to it. John 6, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, They said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? That's not the question, just in case you were wondering. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, a little backstory so we can all be on the same page. Uh, Jesus has just taken a few loaves of bread and fed a few thousand people. These people were a part of that. Uh, and so Jesus is saying, hey, you, you, you didn't see me do this, and now you want to know about me. You, you, you ate, and now you're here. You saw, uh, you had your fill. 27, do not work for the food. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So like I said, here's what Jesus is saying. He, he's saying that, Uh, You're not here because you saw what I did that sparked curiosity in you about who I was. You're here because of what I gave you. Like You're here because you ate your fill, your food. Now, when Jesus uses this word, uh, ate your fill, or this phrase, ate your fill, he's he's hinting at something here. Uh, Jesus is hinting at something that the audience would have caught on. The, 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 The phrase, ate your fill, is one Greek word, No, that means to be satisfied. It means just satisfaction. It means to be satisfied. And obviously, 
Um, it gets used in the context of food, right? I ate a lot of food and now I'm full, I'm satisfied. But there's also a spiritual sense to the word that's used in the scriptures. Let me give you two examples. Psalm 1715, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which by the way, uh, the Bible is written in two parts, Old and New Testament. Uh, Old Testament life up to Jesus, New Testament life after Jesus. Um, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, New Testament is written in, in Greek. There's a New Testament translation of the Old Testament. And look at what they say. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And then Matthew 5, 6, the famous uh, Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, when Jesus is talking to these, uh, these they were Jewish uh, men, when he was talking to these Jews, they would have known this. Like, th- this would not have been a surprise to them. They would have known the, the dual layer uh, of the word that Jesus used. And so when he said, hey, you, you ate your fill, it would have sparked something in them where they would have looked at one another and said, hey, what, what, what's, he, like, what's he trying to get at? Like, what's, his try- what, what's this guy trying to say to us? What's he, what's he getting at? I'll, I'll tell you what I think it is that Jesus is trying to get at. He's trying to get at that there is a hunger that food can't take away. That there is a universal, global, spiritual hunger that bread alone cannot satisfy. There's this spiritual ache inside of us. It's that ache that says there has to be more to life than this. This is the spiritual hunger I believe Jesus is hinting at. And the reality is all of us are going to deal with it one of two ways. All of us will deal with this one of two ways. Either we'll go the religious routes, like these guys, and we come to Jesus because of what we think Jesus can give to us. Or, or, I eat food, or we, we go the irreligious routes, and we avoid Jesus because of what we think Jesus takes away from us. But all of us are trying to deal with this ongoing, aching spiritual hunger inside of us. And this universal spiritual hunger takes us to life's most fundamental question in verse 28. Then they said to him, and here it is, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What must we do to be doing the works of God? If I could just maybe translate this question, it's this. If God exists, how do I know that I'm right with him? Like it if God exists, how do I make sure there's no friction? Because if there's a God, I don't want friction between us. So how do I, if that God exists, make sure that I'm right with him and there is no friction between us? How do I know that I'm doing the works of God? And Jesus' answer is this. Jesus answered them, verse 29, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. See, Jesus' answer is this. Hey, it's not plural works, right? Remember the question, uh, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus says, hey, it's not plural, it's singular. One work, believe. And in their question, in their plural works, it revealed a fundamental misunderstanding that these Jews had. These Jews had a fundamental misunderstanding of how God interacted with humanity and what it was God was wanting out of humanity. See, what they had bought into, what they had believed, was that what God wanted was my moral conformity. See, they had, they had lost sight that much of the Old Testament says, hey, God is after the hearts of his people. 
And they had shifted gears and said, what God wants is us to just follow the law, just follow the moral code. And Jesus is coming in and saying, no, it's, it's got nothing, it's not a, it's, it's about believe. It's a singular work, it's believe. It's believe. It's God wants your heart. And the reality is, the reality is that if I, if I could leave this room right now, get out from these lights, get out of this room, and we could go sit there and have one-on-one, drink good coffee somewhere. If we could do this, if we could have a conversation about what it is that, that you believe about God, I'm guessing many of us, I'm guessing many of us still have this default fundamental position where we believe that what God wants from us is simply moral conformity. That as if we can earn our way into the presence of God, as if we can do enough to be right with God, as if we can do enough to make sure that there is no friction between us. I'm, I'm guessing many of us still believe plural works. And we have to fight to believe singular work. Believe. Believe. So Jesus says singular work, and now the Jews respond. And by the way, by the way, it, if this is you, and on some level, it's all of us. Like on some level, it's me too. If this is you sitting here going, um, I think God is in the sky tallying up on his yellow pad, good mark, bad mark. Who does that sound like? That sounds like my four-year-old trying to figure out Santa. If you think God is up there in the sky floating around with a yellow legal pad going, he did good, he did bad, she did good, she did bad, and I'll find out where the tallies stack at the end of their life. Then you're treating God like my four-year-old treats Santa. And Jesus is saying that's in no way how God wants you to see him or how he sees you. Now he responds, verse 30. And so they, they said it to him, or the Jews respond. So they said it to him, then what sign do you do? What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread to eat. And so the Jewish response, these, these Jews responded like this. Okay, Jesus, you say, you say believe, we say prove it. Prove it. All right, I can roll back, in there. this is them, I can roll back into the Old Testament, I can see... Uh, the nation of Israel wandering around, and I can see God care for them via manna in the wilderness, just dumping bread from the sky. So Jesus, you prove it. Prove it. And the, fu- and the functional truth is that we do the same thing. I do the same thing. We are not that different from the, the Jews that Jesus is talking to right here. Like how, how, many of us, how many of us, if we're honest, and I don't pretend that we are. But if we're honest, how many of us could say or would say, I have never said to God, if you love me, why wouldn't you give me X? How many of us could say, I've never once sat in my bed alone and said, God, I want so desperately to be married. If you love me, why would you not give me a spouse? Or, or God, I, I, I want this career. God, if you love me, please give it to me. How many of us can say, I have never said, God, if you love me, why don't you give me X? We are not that different from the Jews. It's the undercurrent of humanity. It sits underneath us. It sits inside of us. It sits in you. It sits in me. We're not that different. 
And so spiritual hunger, says Jesus, spiritual hunger that's in all of us takes us to the fundamental question that if God exists, how do I make sure that I'm right with Him? How do I know that He loves me? How do I know that He's for me? How do I know that I'm not at odds with Him? This is the fundamental question of humanity. Jesus' answer is believe. The Jews say, okay, believe, prove it. Prove it. And prove it takes us to a debate. Verse 32. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, sir, give us this bread always. And so the debate starts with Jesus saying, hey, listen, you're missing the point. You're, you're missing the point. It wasn't Moses who gave you that bread. It was my Father who gives manna from heaven. It was my Father who gives the true bread, this true bread that is a foreshadow of life to come, this foreshadow of a bread that would give life to all of humanity, to all of humanity, not just Jews, but all of humanity. And so then the Jews are going, obviously, hey, we, we want this bread too. Like, hey, hey, give it to, sir, sir, give us this bread always, always. And so now Jesus gives it to them. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son of Man and believes in him, listen to this, should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me would have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, I, I think there's something uh, that, that we need to see here that gets masked in English. Understandably, but it gets masked. It, and when we talk about life, we have one word, generally speaking. Uh, the word is life, right? I thought that was funnier, but whatever. In the Greek, there's two words. There's the word bios and the word zoe, right? So bios, what do you think that became? Biology. And then zoe, zoe, quality of life, the good life. Bio, bios, physical life. Zoe, quality of life, the good life. And so Jesus uses the word zoe, zoe. He's not saying, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of eternal existence. He's saying, I am the bread who brings the good life. In fact, eternal life, eternal life, eternal existence, eternal bios without eternal zoe is the definition of hell. Eternal bios without eternal zoe is the definition of hell. And Jesus is stepping in and saying, 
I'm not just giving you an eternal existence. I'm here to give you the eternal good life. And so when he says, I will raise it up on the last day, he's talking about the resurrection. And in the resurrection, here's what happens. Eternal bios meets eternal zoe. This is the Christian hope. The resurrection where eternal bios, eternal existence meets eternal zoe, eternal good life, quality of life, good life. And so if I can illustrate, maybe uh, try to paint a picture of what I think Jesus is trying to say, what I think he's trying to get across, I do it this way. A couple of weeks ago, I went downtown to a sushi restaurant with a friend of mine. Uh, I, uh, I'm not a sushi connoisseur. I like sushi. And so we sit down, uh, and I said, hey, man, I'm buying tonight, so just, you know, get us some good stuff. Uh, I regret that decision now, but uh, we, uh, we sat down, and, and we, we started ordering. And by that, I mean he started ordering, and then I started eating, and there was piece after piece, roll after roll. Uh, and this sushi was like no other sushi I'd ever had. I mean... If you're a sushi connoisseur, I can tell you where it was. You might think that place is like a 7, but for me it was like a 12. All right, it was unbelievable. And when that, when that meal ended, I did not want to get up from the table. I, I had no interest, no desire to get up from the table. And I think here's what Jesus is saying. You don't have to. You don't have to. I, I am the bread of life. I am the eternal life, the good life. I am the feast. I am the table that you never have to get up from. I am the meal that never ends. I think that's what Jesus is trying to say to us here. And in saying so, in doing that, he, I think he's redefining Christianity for us. Certainly for them, and I think for many of us. I think that Jesus would be trying to say to us, Listen, what, what I came to bring is much more like a feast than a moral code. It's, it's much more like a meal than a religion. It's a table that you don't ever have to get up from. And so the Jews, um, having heard this, certainly would have said, uh, hey, that's the bread we want. We want that exactly. We want it now. Uh, and so let's keep reading. So the Jews grumbled about him. Apparently not. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So, so I think the question we need to ask to apply this to our lives is we need to ask these Jews, hey, why the change? Like, why the, hey, sir, give us that bread always? to, nah, I don't think we want it. That's not really the bread we're looking for. Sorry, we misunderstood. Why the change? Well, I think, I think here's the change. And I, you're going to have to trust me uh, in reading the Gospels to be able to read in from a mountain of Scriptures to, to understand this a little bit. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I think you'll repeatedly find the Jews blinded by their own arrogance. I think you'll find them repeatedly blinded by their own arrogance, unwilling to let Jesus challenge them in any area of life. And not just the Jews, right? He challenged people up money, sex, power. But here, specifically, he's challenging them about religion. 
and how they see God. And you repeatedly see these men being unwilling, or at least unwilling, not unable, to allow Jesus to challenge them in any area of their life. And I think the truth is that we are no different. We all in this room, every one of us, have areas of our lives that we don't want Jesus to challenge us. We, we all have areas of our life where we're sitting here and we're saying, God, um, I think this area is off limits to you. Maybe not consciously, but at least functionally. And one of the most common ones, not just culturally, but within our sojourn family, uh, is sex. And so I say we talk about it. So we crack the ice, we talk about the awkward topic. Um, The way that God wired sex to be is for sex to flow out of relationship, not for, not for relationship to flow out of sex. God wired sex for relationship, for sex to flow out of relationship, not relationship flow out of sex. This is why, this is why pornography and sex outside of marriage is so damaging. Both, both dehumanize and objectify the other person. So let me, let me maybe illustrate it or explain it. Um, pornography, that's pretty straightforward. I don't feel like I need to explain that one. Um, I'm happy to, but um, don't think I need to. But let me, let me talk about sex outside of marriage. The, the logic um, is either one of these two things. Either one, uh, we need to find out, are we sexually compatible? Right before we go down the road toward marriage, we need to find out, are we sexually compatible? Or two, I, I'm, a, I'm a man or I'm a woman just like you, and I've got needs that need to get met. Just like you have needs that you need to get met. Both of these, both of these say, uh, I want you to give me your body, but I'm unwilling to give you my soul yet. And if I'm saying, I'm, I'm expecting you to give me your body without me being willing to give you my soul then we are objectifying the other person. We are dehumanizing the other person. And I think this is an area where some of us need Jesus to enter in and challenge us. And we need the grace of God to allow ourselves to be willing to be challenged. Maybe that's your area. Maybe you know that right now the Spirit of God is speaking to you. Maybe that's not it. Maybe that's not. Maybe for some of you, it's money. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's a thousand other things. But the functional reality is we all have areas like this. We all have areas like this. In fact, the most consistent fight in my house between my wife and I over the last six months has been because an area in my life has gotten exposed. The Lord has used her to challenge that area, and I haven't liked it. And so I, I know that it is painful and it is never enjoyable to say, hey, this is, this is me, um, and Jesus, I need you to enter in and change me, challenge me, and engage me. And I know that when the Lord does that through other people, it's never exciting. Always needed. Always needed. So we all have these areas, every one of us. For the Jews, it was their religious understanding of how God operated. Jesus uh, was engaging. They were unwilling to let him. And so now he, he keeps going. And he shifts from a, 
on it, keep going. Verse 43. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. And so here's what Jesus does. Jesus does what Jesus does, and he enters into the area where they won't let him challenge. And listen, the longer you keep that stiff arm up, the, the, the more violent the challenge is going to be when he comes in. That's for free and a side note, not part of the sermon. He, he does what he does, and he enters into this religious world where they were unwilling to let Jesus challenge their understanding of God. He enters in and he says, hey, listen, you, you, you are not even close to getting it. You still think that it's by your morality, by what you do. You work your way, earn your way to the Father. And what, it, what, what does it know? It's the Father draws you. The Father invites you. The Father pleads you to come to Him. It's not how you see it. It's not moral conformity. It's an invitation from the Father to Him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws Him. He gets inside their religion, inside their effort to be good enough. And so this spiritual hunger, Jesus is saying, I am the only one that can satisfy it, and I am the only means to eternal satisfaction for it. And so he decides to end this debate with a declaration, verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The, li- the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Did you know that everything you eat has to die first? Everything. Bread is no different. Grain has to die. But bread actually goes farther. Because bread has to be torn. Or if the bread stays whole, you starve. Bread has to be has to die and then has to be torn for you to eat. And so when Jesus is saying, the, the bread that I would give is my flesh, he's speaking about the cross where he would both die and be torn. Where he would be the bread that gives life to the world. Where he would become, he would become the true bread where his bios dies so that our zoe may come alive. The physical life of Jesus would die on the cross so that the good life might come to life in us. I think this is the eternal feast. This cross is the eternal feast that we are invited to. It's a table that we don't ever have to get up from. And, and if I could land the plane like this, all of us, all of us in here are feasting at a table. Every one of us in this room have a table that we're feasting at. Every one of us in this room have something or someone that we think you, you will satisfy me, right? It can be um, marriage. 
It could be our job. It could be oil. It could be career. It could be children. You name it. We all have a table that we're feasting at. It could even be, it could even be self-pity. It could even be, I don't have these things, and so I'm going to turn inside of myself to self-pity because I think that in my self-pity, I can feel satisfied for a little while. I can feel justified for a little while being upset. But here's the thing. Every single table that we feast at will make promises that it doesn't keep. Every single table. There is no table out there that you think will satisfy this spiritual hunger inside of me that doesn't make promises on the front end that it doesn't keep on the back end. None. But one. But one. One table. One table says, I make promises that will never let you down. One table. One table says, hey, the good life is here. The feast is here. One table. And so here's what I want to say. I want to I give kind of a four-point plea for how you sit at the table and how you stay at the table. And I don't mean to sound like a politician with my four-point plan. It's that season. I'm pretty excited about it. But I want to give four ways that we, can, that we can go, this is the table where I will feast at for all of eternity. I want to give you four ways to sit at that table and stay at that table. None of them are going to be rocket science. You ready? Prayer, word, sacrament, community. In that order. Prayer, that we would be a people of prayer. We would plead, oh God, let me have a deep-rooted, intimate relationship with you that in prayer I would consistently, daily engage the Lord. And by the way, you have a choice every day to engage the Lord in prayer or to not. Every day. And if we don't, listen to me, if you don't, If you don't pursue a rich prayer life, the next three are going to be pretty hollow. The next three will become like religion, not like a feast. They become things I do to try to make up for intimacy that's lacking between me and the Lord. Prayer. Prayer. And listen, all of us, again, Tim Keller, if you don't know who that is, he's a pastor in New York. Uh, very much a spiritual hero in my life. Um, wrote a book on prayer, uh, and in there talks about when he really developed a rich, robust prayer life, and it was around the age of 50. So cut yourself some slack, give yourself some grace, and just say tomorrow, I'm going to start to choose an intimate relationship with the Lord through prayer. All right? Second word, both public and private. Private, open up the scriptures, open them up. Open them up. Don't don't be the sermon illustration of dusty Bible. Open up the Scriptures. Pursue the Lord in the Scriptures. Every single week we say this, that in the Scriptures we believe the person and work of Jesus is most clearly revealed. Go and see and find Jesus in the Scriptures. He's there cover to cover. Soak it in. And then public, word, prioritize. This is going to go to the next one also. Prioritize gathering on Sundays with your local church, with this family. We, we are not an event you attend. We are a family we belong to. 
we prioritize a regular weekly Sunday gathering together where we sit under the word and the scriptures nourish us and sustain us. Prioritize gathering on Sunday. Sacraments. Every week we go from word to the table. We come down and we take this bread, we dip it in the cup and we eat it and then someone says to us, hey, this is the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you and that by the grace of God, by a divine mystery, our spirit, our spiritual hunger is sustained by Christ in the table. Come to the table. Prioritize gathering on Sunday, not because of people and not just because of word, but also because of the table. That you might see this beautiful mystery at the table sustains your faith. And then for community, we I mean, every week we talk about the necessity of entering into a neighborhood parish that you might live life as family with one another. That, that you might be willing to say, hey, th- this is me, this is some areas in my life that I need Jesus to challenge. And you might allow people around you to do that. And it will never be fun. Always be worth it. Always be worth it. But it's not just that. There's also, um, hey, I, I'm, I, I'm searching for X, Y, Z, and I love, I love going to get coffee and dinner and drinks and you name it with the men and women inside of my parish. I, I love living life with these men. We, we live life together so that, so that in such a way, in such a way that parish is not an event either. It's not a Wednesday event or a Sunday event or a Tuesday event. It's a people that we live life with and belong to. And here's why this is important. This is, a, this is not a church growth strategy, right? If we were simply after church growth, we would have event after event after event. Here's what we believe. One of the things that we believe is that you need a family of men and women inside this church to live life with so that they can keep you at the table. So that you can keep them at the table. If you drift into isolation, let me tell you what's going to happen. Eventually, drift, it becomes a jog, it becomes a run, and you wake up a thousand miles from the Lord, isolated, alone, and angry. That is the end game if you run into isolation, but we need men and women that can keep us at the table. And so where do we start? Like, what, What's our, hey, here's my next step? What's the action plan, Brandon, when I leave here? I think the action plan for most of us, most of us is this. We repent from relying on religion. Repent from relying on religion to keep us at the table. Repent from relying on our moral conformity, our obedience at keeping us at the table. And we believe. And we believe. We look to Jesus and we believe. What what if I already believe, Brandon? You keep on believing. You keep on believing. You open up the scriptures. You engage the Lord in prayer. You walk into community as frightening as it may be. As frightening as it may be. You walk into community so that, so that through our neighborhood parishes we might keep one another at the table. Feasting. Feasting on what Jesus has done for us. Until the last day when we're raised up together. Let me pray. Father, I love you. I bless you. I thank you. Thank you for the men and women who are part of this local church, who are part of this spiritual family. 
I pray for the men and women in here right now who, uh, who would say, I, I have this longing for more, this spiritual hunger that I don't know how to articulate, I don't know what to do with. I, I pray that, that they would know that the solution to that is not more morality, it's not more to-dos, it's belief. It's belief. And then for those in here, I just, um, Lord, I, I just get the sense right now that there are many of us running into isolation. I pray, Lord, that you would reroute our lives back into community, that we would invest our lives in one another, that we might keep one another at the table. We love you. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen.